Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast, your go-to source for personal, professional, and organizational growth and development. We hope you tune in often for all things people management, organizational development and change, organizational leadership, and social impact related. Maximize your personal and organizational potential with Human Capital Innovations Podcast. Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. In this HCI podcast episode, I talk with Carrie Freeman about the importance of advocacy and mentorship for women leaders. Carrie Freeman, welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be with you. I'm super excited to explore a really important topic with you today, and that is advocacy and mentorship for women leaders in the workplace. We know that there's already a gender gap that has persisted for a really long time, uh, just generally across the workforce. We know that's even a wider gap in terms of women leaders in executives in the workforce. And during these last two years of the pandemic, some have suggested that we might even be setting ourselves back a whole generation uh, in those efforts, which is super sad. So the question then becomes, you know, how do we counteract that? How do we really help to proactively promote greater levels of equity and accessibility and inclusion for, for women in the workplace. And I think a lot of that comes through the advocacy and mentorship that needs to be there to support uh, women as they pursue leadership and executive roles. So this is what we'll be exploring together today. As we get started, I wanted to share Carrie's bio with everybody. Carrie Freeman is co-CEO of Second Muse, an impact and innovation company that builds resilient economies. Since 2012, she has been steering the global company's approach to finding and nurturing innovators dedicated to social and environmental good and building supportive ecosystems around them. Its mission aligns with Carrie's fundamental belief in the the infinite capacity for humans to learn and grow and the potential for inclusive markets and businesses to massively scale positive change. I love it. I could go on and on, Carrie, but I'll pause there, give you a chance to share anything else about yourself that you would like listeners to know by way of your background or personal context, and then we can dive on into the conversation. You know, John, there's so much I could share, and I, and I um, think we should just dive on in. Okay, sounds great. Um, maybe we can start. I'm always curious how people find themselves in the spaces, you know, where they end up, where the niche that they're in. Um, so tell us just a little bit about Second Muse, um, how you got into this space, and I love the idea of, of having an impact and innovation company building resilience and focusing on inclusive markets. I mean, that's the kind of thing that a lot of organizations just aren't even really focused on, right? Yeah, definitely. So we were founded almost 14 years ago. Um, I was not one of the founders. I joined, um, like I said, in 2012. So I've been with us for 10 years, but it was started by uh, one of my really dear friends. And when I, when I left Intel, which was where I was at previously, I had already been collaborating with Second Muse and this whole idea of how do you bring different organizations across all the different um, systems together to solve these global challenges was so compelling to me. 
And so it was something that I, I knew the founder. It seemed um, seemed pretty hippy dippy. I had people tell me, almost everyone tell me I was committing career suicide. Um, I had had, I was getting um, recruited for executive level positions in major corporations. And people are like, what in the world are you doing? <laughs> Don't go do this. This is like some weird little hippy dippy thing. But what I really saw was a group of change makers and um, several of the people we worked with were truly change makers in the organizations that they were leading, um, including the federal agencies. This was under the Obama administration. And he had brought in so many young people who were deeply innovative and deeply like focused on making our country and world better. And so what we ended up doing was uh, bringing together these you know, really important, very powerful organizations and trying to address things like climate change and disaster preparedness and um, open democracy, right? Getting more people engaged in our democracy. And so I was so, I was excited to be a part of that. Um, and it still excites me every day. Yeah, that's awesome. And it's not really gonna be the focus of our conversation today, but this is a passion that I share. I, I do a lot of work in the social impact space. And, you know, I, I feel like this is more and more relevant to more and more people, thankfully. Um, you were ahead of the curve though, I mean, back, 10 years ago, this was not as much on the forefront of the public consciousness. And, and like you said, I think many uh, more people um, back then couldn't quite see, see that they, they couldn't have the vision of this. But now, thankfully, more and more people are coming around uh, to it and understanding the power of social impact work and, and social change uh, and building that into how we run our businesses in more sustainable ways. So that's wonderful. I commend you for that. Um, now let's transition a little bit and talk more specifically about women in the workforce, women leaders. Uh, what are some of the biggest challenges you see for females in the labor force, particularly those who want to take on leadership roles? Uh, wh why does this gap persist? And, and some suggest have even, has even been widening over the last couple of years. Yeah, I, I, I think so much of it comes down to, there's so many things, there's so many facets, like anything, right? It, it's complex. And so trying to boil it down into one or two things is, is not helpful, I would say. But um, I think that part of it is the culture, the systems that we have around us, right? The cultural expectations, whatever those may be on the roles of women, um, how women should show up, how women should be... Um, how women should act. So I think there's just a whole cultural element of that that um, is everywhere. It's ingrained, right, in lots of families, in um, in organizations, in religions, et cetera. There, so there's this whole element of just like the cultural ways in which we do things, and obviously that seeps over into the workplace. Um, on you know how should women show up? Um, you know, there's so many different things on how women should show up. I've been told, oh, Carrie, wear your glasses because you look so much more intellectual and serious. Oh, you're kind of coming across a little, you know, you're intense, you're bitchy, you're whatever. And then I have another good friend who's like, don't ever say that because then you're acknowledging it. And I'm like, no. So there's like every little small thing, there's um, there's elements of this. And then I think there is the element of um that I, I was just listening to prep for this. I was listening to your latest um podcast on um the imposter syndrome, right? And I think there's just this element that lots of humans face. I think that there was a, there was a stat in there about 70%, but I think women face it in greater and greater um, percentages. And so when I look at this, it's, it's just all across the board. And so some of the work that we are doing specifically um, a program called Get Cities 
and it's focusing on increasing the representation of women in the tech industry is really looking at all these different facets and how can we support that, right? Because it's not just one thing. It's not just like, oh, let's help women, you know, let's help women get confident. That's part of it, of course, um, you know, and then you and then you start to pile on like familial duties, um, you know, child care, parent care, all those other things that we're thrashing about right now that, that really got um, exposed even further during COVID. Um, yeah. So yeah, there's so many things. Yeah, there, there really are. And, and I'm glad you mentioned the mentorship, for example, that's important and, and organizations need to have programs for mentorship. But ironically, we've also seen, I mean, there's been studies on this that have shown how overwhelmed women get in terms of the mentorship because there aren't that many women you know it's disproportionately low in terms of women leaders and executives so they bear a greater burden of the mentorship for those who are coming behind them and and hats off to to uh women who who take on that role and, and invest their time and energy into the next generation that's wonderful but we can't expect you know, women to pull all the load and we can't expect, it's just like with any diversity, equity, and inclusion conversation, you don't like force all of the disadvantaged groups to like do all the work to, to make things fair for them. <laughs> like right, we, we, exactly. we, there, there has to be other work that happens. So we, I, there has to be more, uh, more mentorship that happens. Um, but it goes beyond mentorship. You talked about the norms, the cultural elements, but also, also the systematic components. And so when I think of advocacy, and that's one of the things I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, advocacy um, is is crucial because anyone can be an advocate. I, I might not be able to be a mentor for a potential woman executive because I'm a dude, um, but I can be an advocate for more equitable systems to, to break down the, uh, the existing policies, practices, procedures within the organization that disproportionately negatively impact or discourage women from pursuing, you know, uh, these types of roles. And that's something I can absolutely do. I can speak up in meetings. I can push back. I can ask the why question over and over again. Like we've always done it this way. Why? Who, who is that serving? Is that, is that fair? Is that equitable? Um, who are we, you know, disenfranchising through the way that this is set up? How can we shift it and change it so that it, it truly is more inclusive, more accessible to anyone? Right. And, and that's something we can all do and we all need to do because, uh, because if, if we're backtracking uh, in large part due to the pandemic, you know, in, in child care, family care, care, home care, all those um, components. And we know women disproportionately tend to take on those roles at home. You know, if, if we've been backsliding, we need more than ever for everyone who's listening to step up and to start being advocates uh, advocates in your organization for the women around you to make sure that things are more equitable. 100%, you nailed it, you nailed it. And I think one of the, we talk about, you know, whether it's advocacy or mentorship or allyship, right? I like the word ally as well, um, because it kind of, uh, for whatever reason, allyship feels more like you're in the trenches with me versus just advocating for me. You're like, you're with me. But um, we've yeah, actually like just that. launched yeah, we've just launched a program um, with this Get Cities in DC. So we're in three cities, really specifically focused, trying to make change at this at the regional city level. And we've launched an allyship program, all right, to, to specifically get men into the program so that they, they have better tools and skills and practices to actually help with this. Because I think there are, it's, you know, you don't know what to do sometimes. And so just starting with that. But yeah, that is absolutely, we can all do it. And I think that's one yeah. of the key messages that I have is like 
in every single way and every single day, we can all make small, um, we can all make small choices in how yeah. we show up, how we support, how we engage, how we mentor, you know, be very, very intentional about what we're doing. Yeah, I like that. And the allyship component is really important. I remember back, oh my goodness, I, I would like to say, you know, that I've always been a great advocate and great ally. I, I'm sure that's not true. And I'm sure over time, I've gotten better and more comfortable uh, with the language and just doing it in, in better, more supportive ways. But I remember there was a, a time, I don't know, maybe a decade ago, where my heart was in the right place, but I, I was very clumsy and really came across, um, you know, not as positively as, as I wanted to. And in fact, I, I, I got kind of got dogpiled on <laughs> um, because I said things wrong and, and, and I really did have the right intentions, but I just, I didn't know what I didn't know in terms of, of how to frame things and how to say things. And, uh, and so I've been learning as I go to try to be a better ally, to be a better advocate. Uh, and I would just encourage anyone listening, you know, like same thing, it, it's okay to not have it perfectly right. Don't allow the fear of putting your foot in your mouth you know, to keep you from making the effort uh, to, to make that difference. And if you have some privilege, whatever that privilege looks like for you, I think you have a responsibility to utilize it for the, the people who may have less of a voice for whatever reason. Totally. I love it. I love it. I, uh, I don't know if you want me to share a, like a little anecdote. Um, sure, sure. But, but um, my co-CEO is, um, it's a male, it's a man. You know, we've been friends for a long time and we've been deeply committed to gender equality and trying to understand what that really means, because I don't think we all really know what it means, to be quite honest with you. I mean, there's elements that we understand. Our numbers as an organization always show, much to my um, dismay, that the women aren't as happy. They're not as engaged. They're not as satisfied. So we do employee engagement surveys and it always comes up that there's a gender bias. And so, so Todd and I really dug into this and there's still times I'm like, dude, in a company meeting, you repeated exactly what I did. You, what I said, you just mansplained me. This literally happened a month ago. And, you know, and I'm behind the scenes kind of slacking him. And I'm like, what the hell did you just do? He's like, oh, I wasn't paying attention. And so I think there's all these things. And I think if you're not willing to actually get in there and try, and if you have, if you don't have people on the other end that are willing to actually work with you on it, um, then it just becomes difficult. But yeah, I mean, these things happen all the time, right? <laughs> it's like, and it's the small, oftentimes there's the small things. I think there's the big, like, how do you become an ally? How do you support people? But I think there's, it's when we start looking at cultural norms, especially in the workplace, there's all these little things, right? Do not repeat what the woman just said. Do not make it, you know, do not say it louder. <laughs> do not cut them off. You know, just, I mean, those are just very small things, but they, but they add up. Check out our new weekly LinkedIn newsletter, Alchemizing Human Capital, exploring industry trends via original research and interviews with executives and thought leaders from across the globe. We look forward to having you join us. Bluer Than Indigo Leadership, the journey of becoming a truly remarkable leader. Early in my adult life, I learned about an Asian proverb that translates as bluer than indigo. If you think about the color indigo, it is a brilliant, deep, and vibrant blue, what some would call the bluest of blues. To have something that is bluer than indigo is rare and truly remarkable. 
Contrary to popular myth, there is no one-size-fits-all or cookie-cutter approach to effective leadership. There is no silver bullet, no secret sauce, no go-to model that will solve all of your problems. The truth is, great leaders have all had their unique strengths and flaws, and have all had to discover and then pave their own distinctive path in their life's journey to fulfill their leadership potential. Bluer Than Indigo Leadership will help you discover your own path and explore those ordinary, everyday actions that will help you respond to an uncertain future and produce extraordinary results for individuals, teams, and organizations. absolutely do add up. It, it contributes to an overall um, atmosphere and culture. And do you have a psychologically safe culture or do you have one where people actually are afraid to speak up, to speak out, um, to push back? I'm trying to remember what, I, what it was I was watching, but I saw, I was watching something over the weekend and it was a really great example of a female in a meeting kind of getting talked over and then the guy taking her idea <laughs> and totally stealing it. And, and she stood up for herself. Um, and, and so it was a really, it was a really great model for like, if this situation happens, what should you do? And she spoke up for herself. She says, wait, no, that's not okay. And she, she started by saying, I'm sorry. And she's like, wait, no, I'm not sorry at all. (laughs) This is not okay. This was my idea. You just completely took credit for it and, uh, and completely turned, you know, around the, the, the feeling in the room and in the conversation and people backed her up. So that was wonderful. Um, and we need more of that when it does happen. Uh, hopefully over time it won't happen as much, but we know it happens all the time. And so we need to, we need to have, you know, those allies and those advocates to speak up because sometimes, uh, woman won't feel like she, because of the political dynamic or whatever, she doesn't feel like she can speak up for herself. So maybe that's me. And I have to say, wait, wait, wait a minute. <laughs> you just completely restated what she just said and took the credit. That's not okay. Um, and, and that's one small little thing I can do. Yes. Everyone can do that. We can all do that. So. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious then we we've kind of laid out what some of the common problems are, um, we br- talked in b- broad brushstrokes in terms of advocacy um, and allyship and mentorship, uh, but I'm, I'm curious, other specific things that you would suggest that uh, anyone listening could start to do today in their organizations to t- start to make a difference, to, to change the systems, to, to change the culture, and to be better, more supporting for the women around them? Yeah, definitely. So I, I think there's a lot of things that can be done and just, you know, very kind of structural nuts and bolts things. Look at your pay parity, right? I mean, it may seem like a simple deal, but I, I don't, I can't keep track with all the, the stats, but somewhere to the, you know, women still make, what is it? 83 cents on average, um, you know, um, to the dollar to the men's. And so you'd say, okay, that, I mean, that's a very structural thing that you can just simply do in an organization and say, okay, um, you can look at the, the women parity in leadership positions and in management positions or any sort of position, right? And say, okay, am I really, am I really supporting women from a structural perspective? So, you know, that's an example of what you can do. I do really think of, you know, to be how, how absolutely much can we support women through our parental policies? Um, We also want to support men. And I think that's one of the things that we've learned um, over the years. And I think it was just, I think it was just Google yesterday that came out with some new, you know, an enhanced um, parental leave policy. But in countries where you see that it's really, where it's almost mandatory for men to take more European countries, 
some sort of parental leave, when their children are born, they end up being much more lifelong um, participants in domestic and parental duties, right? And so it's not just enough to say, okay, that's fantastic. The birthing parent, the mother gets, you know, four weeks or whatever, four months of unpaid or paid, you know, paid time off. Um, but we also encourage the men to do it too, because it's a systemic thing, right? So I think there's this one of like, how do you use, I guess I look at it as like, how do you get smart about some of the best practices and where you want to be? And how do you use absolutely every single lever in your organization to improve the situation? So I guess that's, but, but, you know, getting smart about it's I think the first yeah. thing. Um, yeah. One, one of these structural things I was talking to researchers from Australia, um, they're, they're behavioral economists uh, at this think tank in Australia, and they were doing some research on opt-in mechanisms within organizations for women. Uh, and one of, in, in a couple of their studies, one of the simple things that they found is that you just, it, it's a simple lever change that instead of making things opt out um, versus, sorry, I said it backwards. You want to make it automatic that people have to opt out rather than opt in. Because when, when you make it an opt in mechanism, disproportionately more men, even if they're not qualified, will opt in for stuff that they're not even remotely qualified for. And women who are incredibly qualified won't opt in. But if you just make it, uh, everyone's considered, you have to like specifically choose to opt out, then you see much more parity in terms of women taking on important assignments and projects and executive roles and being considered for all of those. Uh, so sometimes, you know, a leader who, who thinks they're trying to be inclusive, you know, they, they say, hey, we got this really great opportunity. We know it's going to be a little bit of a hardship, you know, say it's, it's a, I don't know, a, a two-year expat gig over in Europe or wherever. Um, we're looking for someone who might be interested. Um, let me know if you're interested. You send that email out to everybody. Research shows that disproportionately the men are the ones that are going to say they're interested. Now, does that mean the women aren't interested or is something else going on? Is there a cultural norm where they're afraid of speaking up because then they're going to be seen as too ambitious and or whatever, right? And so you simply change the language and and you just make it opt out and say, you know, I'm, I'm considering all of you. Uh, I'm excited to have conversations. If you're not interested, let me know. And then lo and behold, you know, some people will self-select out and then you can actually con consider everyone who might truly be good for the opportunity. That, that simple kind of a little lever change can make a huge, huge difference. Huge difference. Yeah. I love, I love all the behavioral economics concepts and they're so smart. That's where I say, you know, like get smart about what you can do um, and design your systems around them. And yeah, that's, that's a perfect example. I think, I think just in women, in general women, whether it's, Hey, I don't want to be too ambitious, you know, imposter syndrome, I don't know if I can do it. I think there's always these barriers, right? <gasps> I cannot do that. I have to, you know, I have to take care of kids. I have to take care of this. I mean, the first thing that I think always pops into most women, whether or not they have families is I can't because of X, Y, Z. Yeah. Yeah. You know, instead of, instead of reframing it and helping people think of, oh, I can do that. How can I? Right. So, so kind mm -hmm. of changing the equation. And that's, that's one of the things I, I think from an organizational perspective, you're right on the opt out. And then I think whenever I do a lot of, you know, coaching and mentoring is getting people to think of how can I? instead of, I can't, and, you know, I just can't do that. How, okay. How can you, like, what does it take? Yeah. What obstacles are in the way that we can help take away? Right. <laughs> I was having another, in, an, another interview recently. Um, and it, it had to do with, uh, the issue of childcare. Now we know, again, it's, this isn't only a, a, 
a female issue and it, it can be anyone with children, um, but disproportionately women tend to take on the brunt of that trying to figure things out. And so tr just trying to navigate, okay, there's this client meeting or there's this new project or whatever, but what am I going to do with my childcare? Right? Well, men who have been taking on those roles for forever, they get to expense all sorts of things and they're allowed to expense all sorts of things while they're on these trips. But for whatever reason, childcare is usually not one of those things that's expensable. Like we don't allow that to be expensed. Why not? Uh, that, that's just a policy decision that we can make and we can change. It, it's, and it's a relatively easy thing to change if we just take a hard look at it and say, well, does it make sense to, to provide reimbursements or uh, allow people to expense the, this set of things, but not this set of things? Uh, it, it, largely, it's a historical artifact of just like what things looked like 50 years ago. And we just continue to expense those things. And then there's other things we say, well, that, that we don't expense that. That's not what, what counts. Well, why? Why doesn't it count? It can count as long as we say it counts. Yeah, that's a great one. So that's, that, to me, that's just another example of like what we can do, mm -hmm. you know, and what if people really think about. So I think, I think, you know, getting leaders to really think about a gender lens. And some of the, yeah. part, you know, all of our work, we think about what is the gender lens, right? Just kind of saying, how does this, you know, kind of test those assumptions, test those things that we've always done. Um, you know, I started traveling with my son um, as, you know, leader in the organization that three months and I carried the cost for a couple months. And then I was like, guys, this is nuts. I can't do this. You know, I'm paying like two grand between a childcare provider, you know, and at the time it was an extra flight because he got older as, you know, travel, but I'm like, that's a lot of money. And so we changed that. And um, I do think that having women in leadership positions, quite frankly, is going to help all of us better understand these gender issues, right? Because I think we were pretty, we were somewhat progressive um, on, we tried to be, let me put it that way. But as soon as I got in and I started living it, and even now, you know, you know, my kid's exposed last week at school from COVID. And so he's at home and there's other people, we're all, you know, the, the parents with kids that are exposed and at home are, are on this. But I think having, women in these roles actually helps us better understand the issues and do something about them, right? Because I'm like, absolutely, we should do that. You know, an issue came up yesterday that I realized one of our employees was on maternity leave or parental leave. We were trying to change our language. It hasn't fully stuck, but parental leave um, during our annual performance review process. And you know what? We screwed up. We didn't catch it when she came back. We should have. Oops. Um, and she's really upset about that. And I was like, well, this is a no issue folks. Like, of course we go like, yeah, take care of it. We should have done it in October. <laughs> when she came back, we screwed up here. We are in, in, you know, at the beginning of February, just go do it. We, you know, we should have done that. But I think that there are times where it's like, well, of course she shouldn't miss out on a performance review process, but, but having, I do believe that having women, like having the lived experience, quite frankly, for anyone, right. It's not yeah. just women having a you know, having people in leadership positions with a lived experience from people who've been quite frankly marginalized yeah. um, is always super critical, right? Because you just can't change that lived experience and that and the empathy that comes along with that. Yeah, absolutely. Well said. And we just don't know what we don't know. We don't know our blind spots. So it, it you know, people can be incredibly well-intentioned and still have huge blind spots. So that's why you need more diversity around the table. You need more different perspectives in uh, different lived experiences so that you can catch those things. Uh, the number of times that I've seen, you know, communications come out from an executive group that you're just like, man, who did they not run this by? Because <laughs> like there's some major red flags that clearly they were thoughtful in trying to be careful 
you know, I, you know, I know the people that they're, they're not trying to, to cause any harm. Um, they, they just have blind spots that they don't realize that they have. So it's, it's our responsibility to, to really diversify our team so we can have those perspectives and then seek the, their input so that we can shine a light on our blind spots and catch a lot of those things. And then when they happen, happen, just fix it. Like you said, in your example, some organizations will say, well, I'm sorry, you know, it, it's, it sucks, but you know, she missed out and it's, that's policy. And, you know, they'll, they'll just explain it away like that. And rather than just trying to fix the obvious problem <laughs> or instead yeah. of, instead of taking responsibility saying, you know, trying to pass the blame onto them or something like that, that happens all the time. So let's just get rid of those types of things and, and take care of the people we need to, you know, when the, the issue arises. Well, Carrie, I know at the time I'm going to have to let you go here in just a minute, but before we close, I wanted to give you a chance to share with listeners how they can connect with you, find out more about your work, and then give us a final word on the topic for today. Yeah, absolutely. So pretty easy to connect with, right? Secondmuse.com. We're on the internet. We're on social media. I mean, to connect with me individually, probably the easiest way is LinkedIn. Um, I, 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 will, I will try to respond, but I think that's quite frankly, the easiest way. The rest of my social media stuff, I'm not, I'm not so hot at responding to quite frankly. Um, but yeah, you know, reach out. And I do think that it is, I, I would ask everyone to just be very thoughtful and intentional about what are the different, uh, the different lovers, lovers, the different privilege that you have to really help support women broadly. Right. But obviously women in the workplace. So that would be, you know, we said it and I'll just reiterate it again. So be intentional and be, and be, uh, aware of what, what you can do. Well said. Thank you so much, Carrie. It's been a pleasure. I encourage listeners to reach out, get connected, find out more about what Carrie can do for you. And as always, I hope everyone can stay healthy and safe, that you can find meaning and purpose at work each and every day. And I hope you all have a great week. The Alchemy of Truly Remarkable Leadership ordinary everyday actions that produce extraordinary results. Consider how the nature of work has shifted over the past 50 years with increased globalization, rapid technological advancement, and the shift in economic composition. The average job of today looks very different than the average job of 50 years ago. What will the jobs and organizations of tomorrow look like? Moreover, what does this all mean for organizational leaders? What are the core competencies and capabilities of organizations and their leadership that are prepared for continued disruption and geopolitical and socioeconomic shifts? Regardless of what the future holds, increasingly, leaders need to be socially minded, data-driven, decisive, champions of talent, and disruptors of the traditional notions of leadership, teams, organizations, and work. The alchemy of truly remarkable leadership will help you to explore your own leadership competencies and capabilities and consider ways to apply and implement them into your workplace and personal life. Check out Human Capital Innovations magazine, Human Capital Leadership. Human Capital Leadership is a free interactive e-magazine with the mission to help individuals, leaders, and organizations find innovative approaches to maximize their human capital potential. We publish issues quarterly in August, November, February, and May. Take a look at the latest issue and let us know what you think.
Thanks again for joining us for this episode of the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. I hope you stay healthy and safe and that you have a great week.